Hello and welcome to episode 34 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from the beautiful Commonwealth of Virginia, it's our special guest and friend of the show, Ross Merriam. Hey all, glad to be back. Man, you got the you got you got the hard stamp from Stan, friend of the show. Hope you hope you agree. I do. At least I, I'm <laughs> flattered to be dubbed as such. You were so easy to book. A little bit easier than some of my co-hosts, even. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I know I'm complicated. As I said during our, our Twitter conversation, you, you caught me at a very good time. You know, the, there was no tournament this last weekend. There's no tournament this weekend. August tends to be a lull in competitive magic in general. Uh, I think August and December are generally the two slowest months of the year. So uh, I'm sort of in the middle of a vacation, uh, as much as you could call my regular life not a vacation. Uh, so, yeah, very just a, a case of good timing. Come relax on the vacation beach of the dive down. Also with me in Chicago, freshly back from his yearly pilgrimage to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it's the godfather, Dave Harbarger. Back from the land of pierogies and brats. I'm, I'm so jealous. I love going back to Cleveland. Yeah, it was good. I got to go to a baseball game and do a bunch of stuff with my parents. So it's always nice. I did. We did drive both ways. It's about six hours each way. And we left after work on Thursday. And that was a little bit crazy. I won't do that again. But, uh, you know, don't drive tired, friends. Last but not least, it's our resident bad boy. The one and only Shane Beeps. Man, being introduced last on the opener is is so unique. It's I humbling, feel. isn't it? Shane? It's it's what? so novel. It's so humbling. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be sitting with you all recording an episode. Why is Shane the bad boy? <laughs> I'm not. We're just trying something new. <laughs> is it is it more of a relative thing? You know, you two are so good that Shane can't help but be the bad boy. I mean, I am bad at magic, so there's that. Yeah, that's really what it's all about. The baddest player in modern. Shane Beeps. Yes. Sounds like somebody plays Merfolk. <laughs> I, just, I just lost to Merfolk two rounds ago. That's even worse. He got destroyed by a, a game, game one spreading seas and force of negation. That's the only, the only card in the deck that can actually win games. <laughs> Zach is off this week, but we expect him back next week. On this week's episode, we're dragging Merfolk. Just kidding. <laughs> actually, we're breaking down the results of the latest modern challenge. Then we dive into the current state of modern and try to find peace in a world with Hogak. Finally, we wind down with a listener question. But first, let's housekeep. Thank you, as always, to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation. Shout out to Nico L., Matt B., and Michael V. Thanks for the support. Also, special thanks to Starman for increasing their Patreon contribution. That means a lot to us, too. So, glad you like us. We like you, too. Maybe. Ross is unsure, but he'll, he can be won over. Now with that out of the way, let's jump over to Shane at the news desk. All right. Thanks, Stan. Well, after last week's like 35-minute breakdown, we get to have a nice brief one. Uh, we have an August 4th modern challenge. And so we're going to go over the top eight, and then we'll talk a little bit about what we saw in the top 32 overall. Hey, Ross, before we take a look at the results of this modern challenge, I was just curious, um, do you kind of pay attention to these events as they happen, depending on what format you're looking at in a given week? Or do you feel like there's a lot of noise in the challenges? I will look at a lot of things. It, it does heavily depend on what tournaments I personally have coming up. 
So if I'm playing modern, I'll look at anything and everything. Um, I'm generally of the ilk that any data is good data as long as you know how to you know use use it. And I think I'm pretty good at using it. So I'll seek out as much data as I can get. Um, at the very least, it'll give me an idea of what other people are thinking, which I think is very helpful because you don't want to level yourself by getting too far ahead of the metagame. So uh, I will look at everything, but I am actually going to be in the standard seat in Richmond coming up. So my focus has been more standard recently than modern. Cool. Word. Yeah, we are always looking at these lists. Like in our in our um, Slack, we are eagerly F5-ing on the morning of the, the 5-0 deck dumps, even though those are the noisiest data. They're still fun data. Yeah. So They are the most fun data. That's true. <laughs> All right. So we got our top eight. So uh, first place was Jund. Running zero dark confidant, just like I told you last week. What? Bob is Bob is dead. He's completely out of Jund. He'll never be seen again. If there was one defender of dark confidant, it was Shane Beeps. And I yeah, kept saying, I mean, this card is doing nothing for me. Well, I think that it's definitely seems to be a flex card right now, which is amazing after years of being a staple in Jund. Uh, we do see that singleton tireless tracker in there. Uh, with the the four of Ren and six now a modern staple and a Jun staple apparently. What are you thinking about this? I'm last the guest host uh, Ross. What are you thinking about the latest evolution of Jun? We talked about it last week, but chime in. I think Dark Continent being unplayable has been one of the things that has kept a Jun down. Um, in addition to its just general mopiness as a mid range deck, uh, Ren and six is a very powerful replacement, and it makes complete sense to me that the sort of direct swap has happened uh, in particular because Jund has gotten more popular. Ren and six also matches up very well against dark confidant itself. But yeah. the synergy with Liliana, the veil is so good. And the ability to just never stumble, you know, the, the mid range decks are good when you're curving out and you have discard spell and to threat and to threat and to threat. Uh, and you, then you're drawing some extra cards. You're killing their stuff. When you stumble and you fall behind against humans or you're not able to establish a clock against control and combo decks while um, also uh, closing their window to you know uh, land their counterplay, whatever big threat they have, or set up a combo turn like that, then you get into trouble. And so the consistency that Ren and Six provides, in addition to you know p- picking off small creatures, particularly Thalia Guardian of Thraben and Noble Hierarch, mm-hmm. uh, and then the synergy with the rest of the deck, particularly Liliano the Veil, so the, there's nothing that overwhelming, I think, if you read the card in a vacuum. But when you look at the card in context, it's a lot better. And then in combination with things like Nurturing Peatland and Baron Moor that are new additions to the deck that turn Ren and Six into a card advantage engine where you're drawing, you're actually drawing a card with its plus one um, is very powerful. So you don't need a ton. I've seen two Baron Moors. I see this list only has one. That makes sense to me. Nurturing Peatland, not as strong of a synergy piece with Ren and Six, but two copies here because it's just a significantly better card overall than Baron Moore is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like the mix that this deck has or this list has. Um, and, you know, I, I agree. I think this is the way that Jund has to be built moving forward. Man, it's almost like you listened to our episode last week, Ross. <laughs> you know, I, I think if you go into my Twitter history, you will find something to the effect of, me bashing dark confidant from like two or three weeks ago when the band <laughs> when the bandwagon was just starting i was i was an early adopter despite being anti-jund in general um i it made a, way too much sense it's just too much good cheap removal now now that it is one mana removal exists in three different colors to take out dark confidant so it makes it so much easier for lists to have 
five, six, seven one mana removal spells in their deck. And that's yeah. not even counting things like, you know, Dismember, Oust, uh, you know, Lava Dart, Gut Shot, uh, all these other supplementary role player kinds of removal spells that also Dark Confident, uh, tag Dark Confident. So uh, I am I am 100% behind cutting that card. Yeah, Stan was mentioning that last week as well, the removal, especially like the just the one the one toughness removal, so ubiquitous now. But uh, we got to move on. So going on to second place, we have Sodek showing up again with Hogak Dredge. You know, he's just proves if you keep at it, you keep entering events, you're good at magic, you're going to see some success. He's continually in the top eights, top fours of these events all the time. Um, one of th- some things I found interesting about this list, y'all, is there's a there's only two main deck Hogaks, not kind of the three that we saw at the MC list. Uh, there's no sideboard shenanigans. He moved the blast zone to the sideboard as well. So not not major shifts, just some subtle shifts, probably based on either his testing or um, just he's doing some experimentation here in the challenge. Yeah, I mean, very small differences here. Important to note that Sodek did go six two in the Swiss, snuck into the top eight with a weaker record. This is not a deck that I am impressed with on paper, though it has done pretty well. Uh, I haven't played with it myself, but it seems like it, it is not better than just regular Hogak. But maybe if there's enough Chalice the Void around, it's certainly better against Chalice than regular Hogak. So that would might be a, a, uh, a defining feature. But I, I don't like the Dredge Engine in metagames that are so high on graveyard hate because the dread engine forces you to play to the graveyard in your setup turns. Yeah. Whereas the Hogak deck is playing to the battlefield with cheap creatures. Um, some of them happen to fill your graveyard, like Stitcher Supplier and Seder Wayfinder. So you can hold those back, play your other creatures, still have something going on. And then when you find your uh, removal spell for their play line or rest in peace or what have you, uh, start going off without really losing a lot of resources. You're also able to more easily utilize your Faithless Lootings to dig for those answers, whereas the dredge deck is utilizing those while ley line is on the battlefield, and then by the time you find the answer, you're often forced to start slow dredging with life from the loam, and that is you know horrifically slow. So yeah, you're telling me, I've uh, I've, I, I faced a lot of hate at, at the MCQ we went to recently, and it was rough as a dredge player. Um, third place, uh, Snakerman with Mono Green Tron. He has the Karn the Great Creator package, or they have the Karn the Great Creator package. Otherwise, pretty stock. Um, we see a main deck dismember and three main deck relics, trying to fit those in. Um, fourth place, is it Prison? Interesting deck here. Suceris is a known Prison player. Um, you know, it's not really the typical words of decks we've really been talking about lately, right? Yeah, it's running four Narset, Parter of Veils. To combo with a one of Teferi Puzzle Box, which is an engine you use to lock out your opponent from essentially drawing any cards in their turns. And then I think it wins like one of three ways. Either your opponent scoops on the spot. It also can mill the opponent out by repeatedly cycling the Ipnu Rivulet with a Crucible of Worlds. And then I think the deck can potentially get there in some games by beating down with the Simeon Spirit Guide if you draw it late enough. <laughs> you love talking about this potential win con. Why is it a creature if it wasn't meant to attack? Ross, do you have any thoughts on this deck? I'm curious what you think. You see a lot of decks. Yeah, this is just the the War Prison deck that we saw around the time of MC London. This is the end of April. This deck was getting popular that month of April, really. Um, and it, it didn't adopt this full Narset plan then, but I saw it starting to go in that direction. Uh, and... Then it sort of got interrupted by the release of Modern Horizons and all of this uh, Hogak nonsense. And 
it is a Chalice deck. You know, Chalice quite good against Hogak, against Is It Phoenix, against uh, several other decks in Modern. So uh, you're you're definitely in good shape there. This deck is also very good at casting Chalice on turn one between uh, Mox Opal that it enables easily with its four copies of Welding Jar and four Baubles and four copies of Simeon Spirit Guide. So you have eight ways to get that second mana on turn one. So you're a particularly good Chalice deck, certainly better than Eldrazi Tron is. Um, and then, you know, like the the Grixis Urza decks or four-color Urza decks does have the ability to play some main deck. This only has the single copy of Tormod's Crypt. You know, the Urza decks usually have a Spell Bomb and a Grafdigger's Cage. Mm-hmm. But when you're locking that Hogak player out with Ensnaring Bridge, you know, the Tormod's Crypt to buy you some time uh, is generally pretty nice. And that might be one advantage of the Hogak Dredge deck is that you still have that burn plan um against ensnaring bridge decks if these decks get popular but if people are playing regular hogak which right now they are then having ensnaring bridge and chalice is definitely a good way to start your prison decks and the rest of it like the narset gives you a little bit more game against decks that are going to interact against you things like jund for sure so my one brief claim to fame is i actually played against susurus in person at the SCG where I met you, Ross, in Indy, he and I were both playing in the Classic, and this player knows his way around prison lists. Like, he's really talented. So seeing him kind of go into this direction rather than playing the Urza strategy makes me consider, like, maybe it's got more legs than the broader community is giving it credit for. Yeah, have to wait and see on that one. You can sort of take that two ways, though, right? You, you know, when it's a player who is really well-versed with a deck, then... They're going to be piloting it well above most people, and that might push it ahead, especially in the, the over the course of maybe a single tournament or a small handful of tournaments. Uh, whereas when you see a deck starting to succeed in the hands of people that aren't as experienced with it, then maybe you're going to attribute more of that success to the deck and less of it to the player. Tough thing, tough variables to sort of separate from each other, um, but something to keep in mind. All right, up next in fifth, we have a Hogak deck piloted by the Mighty Linguini. It's a four-color version. It's got three Altar of Dementia. Pretty all-in version, right? It's got the Hedron Crab, the Seder Wayfinder, the Statrius Supplier. Just trying to, what, turbo out some Hogaks here? Yeah, this is the the close to the Channel Fireball list from the MC. They, they were on Crabs and Altars. There's more ways to enable the Graveyard. Uh, altar, in particular, gives you a way to win outside of the combat step which is good against Ensnaring Bridge uh, and similar kinds of effects, things like Ghostly Prison. Um, so it does give you that element, which is a nice. Hedron Crab is definitely an explosive card. So you sort of trade some of your interaction and some of your mana base because the fourth color definitely weakens your mana base. That said, Gemstone Mine is uh, pretty nice in the deck. You usually don't need to tap a land more than three times. All right, up next we have a Jund Hogak build, a bow 0470 no altars no crabs got the neonate golgari thug to help fuel the graveyard there i mean i don't really know i don't have enough experience playing these different hogak builds to really understand the the real difference here is it like a consistency versus speed thing ross like what do you think you really it's just a lot of preference on what the last few cards in the list are going to be this list here with neonate and thug is sort of the pre-mc this was the stock list that was going around online based on what canister XO to challenge with right before the MC. A lot of the teams that had been testing it came to the conclusion that those cards were not very good. That's why you saw a lot of main deck ley lines. You know, some people just said that you know the, the shell is already fleshed out enough as far as being able to accomplish you know, my engine, set that up consistently. 
And so I might as well main deck a card that is going to give me a huge edge in the mirror. There was some consideration there to open deck lists at the MC. So I think you'll see a lot fewer main deck ley lines going forward at closed deck list events. Um, and then that's why you saw the the Hedron Crabs and Altar of Dementias in the Channel Fireball list uh, that uh, PV wrote about on SCG a little while ago. So there's there's still some debate over what people want in those cards in those slots. I have not been a fan in my limited experience with the deck of Golgari Thug. Um, you know you don't you don't really dredge that often. Uh, sometimes it's nice to be able to just dredge up a another creature if you really need to recur Vengevine. But that's about it, um, and that's a pretty you know corner case scenario. I have been okay with Insolent Neonate, but most people haven't, so I'm going to defer to them. Um, but you know, the, this just looks like an older list that maybe they've just been doing well and haven't found any reason to change. Um, where I would be, I, I can't really say because I've been focused on standards, so the minutia of the Hogak deck is not something I've concerned myself with. But you're pretty much thinking if you were playing modern, you'd be playing some build of Hogak right now. Yeah. <laughs> more, more on that later, everybody. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. um, next up, Grixis Urza in seventh. Uh, pretty stock, Thopter Sword combo, prison package here. Um, and then eighth place, we have the Mono Red Prowess deck. So it's a pretty interesting spin, right? So it's got no Phoenix for Betty Revs. And only one mm. Blister Coil Weird. I gotta say, I'm 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 a little surprised, you know, because on the one hand, Phoenix plays with this deck led to some really broken plays that I don't think you get access to with the Bedlam Revelers, but at the same time, you're still super vulnerable to graveyard hate when you have Bedlam Revelers in your hand to the point where they're just like uncastable if someone even Bajuka bogs you once. <laughs> I mean, if you get Bajuka Bajuka bogged, you're probably gonna lose anyway, right? Not necessarily. Okay. I yeah. feel like I feel like whenever whenever the uh, the amulet titan player actually does anything with titan, I'm probably going to die. Who, whose list is this? What was the name of them? Kyle CGI four SS. I think it's Kyle C Glass. By the way, I think that's I think that's hacker talk for Glass. Well, you, he's not he's not a computer graphics person. <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> CG Lass. This is the list that's been advocated by Ryan Overturf for quite a while. Yeah, I, I remember him playing it, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago, maybe. Yeah, he is a big fan of it. It is pretty good against Hogak. You know, outside of them getting the 8-8 in play very early, you can generally overrun them. They don't block well outside of the 8-8. A lot of the time, you have so much pressure on them that they can't attack with the Hogak, and that gives you some time to set up, you know, either go wide around it or find enough burn to kill them, uh, things of that nature. And then, uh, you know, the version without... Arclight Phoenix, you need some other thing to give you some staying power going along. He has generally gone with Bedlam Reveler. Now, there is a different list that has been promoted by Lotus Box recently, where they were splashing green and playing Renin 6. Don't make me buy that card, Ross. I really, really want to play that deck. I've been kind of offline the last couple, last week or so, but I def I have that queued up and ready to rent very soon. It makes the deck's Faithless Lootings a lot better, which is one of the criticisms of cutting Arclight Phoenix. Mm -hmm. Makes your mm -hmm. lootings a lot worse. Renin 6 helps you out there, gives you a bunch of lands to pitch to them. Lands to make sure you can make your line drops and flash back efficiently. Um, you know, is a you know spell to prowess in case you need that. Let's you sort of upgrade your uh, uh, light lightning bolts to kill Thing in the Ice. Uh, which can be important, and then they have seasoned pyromancer as well as this uh, one of their like late game threats. Uh, gives them a little bit of resilience to removal. He's playing a bunch of these one mana one twos makes you vulnerable to lightning bolt. Yeah, 
uh, and that one doesn't use the graveyard. So yeah. they've moved away from Bedlam Reveler, I think, for that reason, to try to dodge Graveyard 8. Would have been the same reason I moved away from Bedlam Reveler with Is It Phoenix last November. So uh, they've had some success with that, that list, and that might be the way that people are going, though we see the mono red one still uh, breaking through here. Is Crash Through actually really good in, in this deck? It's one of those cards that like it's kind of like draft chaff when you really look at it, but I always felt like when I played this deck that you get to a point sometimes where you can't um you know you can't swing into a board because the all people are they're just gonna put chump blockers in front of whoever you're attacking with. So if you can get a threat up to like, you know, seven, eight or something like that, is that generally enough to kind of get through, you think, or yeah, I agree. I think that's why why they're playing Crash Through instead of the other option, which is Warlord's Fury that gives first strike. You know, having some cantrip is pretty nice here. There's not really another uh, spell you want to play. The next one up would probably be like Rift Bolt, which can like sometimes set up uh, some big turns with Suspend, but is not fast enough really for modern. Um, you already have a lot of Spike and Lightning Bolt, so that the one extra cantrip helps you set up not only set up those turns where you get the creatures up to six, seven power. But also ensures that you know that turn isn't going to be wasted because you're right. You can get yourself into battlefields where you have one or two creatures. You make them really big. Your opponent throws away uh, some material to prevent that damage, and you're sort of left with nothing because how you've pumped up those creatures is all card disadvantage. It's either burn spells, so you've converted your cards into damage, or fatal suiting, which is putting you down a card. Yeah, yeah. I've been tempted by crash through. Uh, so I've been playing a lot of mono red lately, including like. A couple of leagues over the weekend and there were definitely a couple of times where i felt like i was getting my prowess creatures up to five or six power and they just had like anything on the board they had a hedron crab on the board and it's like oh well they just gained six life or so but honestly with the phoenix version that i've been doing like that feels like the only corner case where i would ever want to crash through because the burn spells and the light up the stage seem way more valuable usually I mean, you're, it's not like you're sacrificing much there. Here, they're generally playing... I don't know what Phoenix lists are playing instead of Grass Through. Aren't they just playing the same things? We still have our spikes and our light of the stages and everything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Crash Through seems isolated to kind of the Bliss Recoil weird variants that have just a few more creatures, and they seem to want to beat down with the creatures versus kind of go in the air with Arclight sometimes. It's definitely optional. I guess the Arclight decks tend to have a few more threats because they're still playing some Battle Revelers, like something on top of Phoenix. And then you, they have they always have one or two Finale of Promise. That's another big card that they have. Yeah. But again, another card that leaves you vulnerable to Graveyard Hate. Yeah. yeah and if, if anyone listening is not familiar with the modern staple Crash Through, it's just a single red sorcery that gives your creature creatures trample to end of turn and Cantraps draws you another card. Yeah, so it looks to me here that from this tournament, the meta is broken into basically several categories, which is either the Hogak decks, sometimes including Dredge. Then you got these decks that want to go under Hogak. We talked about Mono Red, Phoenix, but Burn, Storm, and Is It Delver were all in the top 32 of the Modern Challenge. Then there's these decks that I think want to go over Hogak, Amulet Titan, the various Tron variants, even Thalia Stompy, and then the occasional interactive deck like Jund and blue-white control maybe prison falls into that category so we're going to take a quick break now and when we return we're going to look at some of these decks that i mentioned and the meta as a whole and consider how we can make peace with hogak in the meta at least until it gets banned if it gets banned and figure out what we can do as casual spikes to be prepared for whatever's to come stay with us 
Ross Merriam, one of the reasons we had you on this week's episode is because last week you published an article to SCG Premium titled, It's Time to Put Is It Phoenix Down in Modern? And it sent shockwaves through the Dive Down Nation, <laughs> including these hosts, because the Dive Down in some ways was born out of our collective love of Is It Phoenix? And then it kind of grew in. Into- oh, hold on, what? Or collective fear of Is It Phoenix, depending on which host you're talking about. That's Are you right. saying there's an origin story of this podcast that involves Is It Phoenix? Well, definitely. Yeah, there was like four episodes in a row where it was yeah, all that we was just because it was a new hotness. That's right. And, you know, other things have gotten hot over time, and it feels like. At least your position, Ross, is that Phoenix has gotten kind of cold. Yeah, it definitely has. I think it sort of started, honestly, during the first wave of Hogak. Though there was a lot of hype around it, there were some tweets saying, like, you know, the deck's really good against Hogak, and a lot of hype around Aria Flame in particular as you know the the final piece of the puzzle because we had spent months, you know, waffling between what uh, tertiary wing conditions the deck should have, whether it be. Bedlam Raveler, or Crackling Drake, or Pyromancer Ascension, or Snapcaster Mage, or Terramander. Uh, a lot of different options were thrown at the wall. Uh, most lists had, had landed on a couple of Pyromancer Ascensions. Some people went full bore with four copies, unless interaction and some Noxious Revivals um, and, and more Cantrips. And uh, Aria Flame seemed to finally be the you know default option, unless your name was Drake Sasser. And the deck was very popular at the Team Modern Open in Pittsburgh. I believe the most popular deck in, in day two uh, for teams, though it, it didn't do that well there. I think there was one in the finals, and there were a few in the top eight. So it, like, it did okay. Um, but I I actually played it in that tournament, and both of my teammates played it. So we were we were a triple Phoenix team. Did not do very well. Did not feel that the deck was that good. Though awkwardly, we played 27 matches on the day, and zero of them were against Hogak. But Afterwards, after the, the Bridge from Below ban, when Hogak reemerged, you know, generally you would feel like, oh, this Hogak deck got worse. Uh, it might still be great, but if Is it Phoenix was good against it before, it should be good against it now. That I don't think ended up being true because you were actually pr- Thing of the Ice was actually pretty good against Bridge, but Thing of the Ice is not good against Lightning Axe, <laughs> and that was one of the cards that snuck its way into the main deck. Once Bridge was gone and giving the deck some interaction, and from the is it side, you're very dependent on thinking the ice in the matchup. So I actually think the matchup got worse. And overall, I just thought is it gets worse in the kinds of metagames that are dominated by Hogak. So did you just kind of wake up in a cold sweat one night, Ross, and just realize was it all these pieces coming together like the end of usual suspects where you're like, <laughs> party's over, turn out the lights? You know, I actually fell asleep while watching the usual suspects. Oh. Um, you don't know fair. who Kaiser Soze is? No, he didn't I, care. I, I do know, but I, I didn't <laughs> actually see it. I just looked up the ending afterwards. I, I don't think there was a single you know epiphany moment. I had just been sort of uh, uh, down on the deck playing it post-Modern Horizons, whether it be in the bridge metagame or the post-bridge metagame. And it sort of reminded me, uh, I'd gotten sour on Is It Phoenix and almost put the deck away one previous time. And it was shortly after the MC in London, where I did not do particularly well in the modern portion. I think I was 5-5 in modern and 4-2 in limited. And that was around the time when everybody was main decking surgical extraction. But I just hated surgical. But it felt like if you didn't, you just gave up such a huge edge in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And then there were these word decks that were getting popular, and you kind of needed a shatterstorm if you wanted to beat them. 
Uh, Tron was one of the more popular decks, and you needed different counter spells to try to beat them. And you know, you you didn't have gut shots, so Thalia was scary out of humans. And your other bread and butter matchups, you know, Invect's a little scarier when you don't have gut shot. Uh, so is uh, Spirits, and that matchup's still good, I think, with main deck surgical. But people really weren't playing it at that time. You know, we got we sort of got to the point five months after the deck uh, first was unveiled that everybody was prepared for it. Nobody was playing decks where they thought their Phoenix matchup was bad because they all knew that that Phoenix was going to be one of, if not the most popular deck in the room. And the ways in which people were attacking it were very diverse. And while Phoenix is good at finding its specific, you know, cyber cards in a matchup, it doesn't have a ton of space to fit, you know, cyber cards for a bunch of disparate matchups because you need a lot of cards that go towards the engine. Yeah, let's talk about Ross, you kind of have like three, three and a half factors is kind of, I think, the major headlines of the article, right? And it's kind of, so the reasons that you think he's a Phoenix isn't right right now is kind of the rise of Hogak, the decline in Lightning Bolt's kind of power, and the influence of the London Mulligan, and maybe some kind of, you know, other problem cards. So let's, let's, let's kind of maybe go through these individually pretty quickly, right? So one, the rise of Hogak, we all have known and talked about on this podcast. So why do you think Hogak specifically brings a problem to decks like as a Phoenix. So there's a couple reasons. One is the deck does not do a very good job at dealing with Hogak. Uh, you know, like eight, eight is, yeah, the, yeah. the card Hogak is very large. <laughs> it is both larger than the red removal uh, can kill and fairly easy to recast post Awoken Horror. And once you recast a post Awoken Horror, bigger than Awoken Horror. You know, a lot of the time, uh, you'll transform an earlier Woken Horror, get a hit in. Your opponent will rebuild their board somewhat, for, be forced to you know let you get another hit in, and then stabilize. But at that point, they're like six, and they have to play carefully around uh, another lethal attack, and you just sort of sit behind your 7-8 and set up either two bolts or bolt plus Phoenix and things like that just to finish them off. Can't really do that against Hogak. They have plenty of chump blockers to throw in the way, uh, and then the Hogak itself is just bigger than your 7-8. So oftentimes they can just recast the Hogak the following turn and you don't even get the second hit in. And that frees them up tactically a lot because they have more life to play with. So Hogak is a problem itself. The second reason uh, is the graveyard hate that fits most cleanly into the Phoenix deck, which is Surgical and Ravenous Trap, are not good against Hogak. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. We, yeah. we figured that out. You just don't, re- you, you just too often don't have a window to actually utilize them for any value if your opponent's on a Hogak draw. If they're on a Vengevine draw, sure, those cards are going to be good. But your Thing in the Ice is also going to be good against Vengevine. Uh, so like, you're pretty good against their Vengevine draws. You're not good against the Hogak draws. But everybody knows that, and everybody knows that Hogak is the best card in the deck. So they mulligan aggressively towards the Hogak draws anyway. Mm. Uh, so that's not really something to hang your hat on. And then the other major issue is like your other disruption is not very good against them. So even if you're able to, to stop Hogak, you know, your lightning bolts and gut shots and things are not going to be able to contain a giant pile of uh, grave crawlers and blood gas and venge vines and carrion feeders. Ross, I had a question about this when I was reading your article. I was kind of like, isn't isn't bolt and gut shot, aren't those just, just fine as burn spells? Or is that something like you just, you can't hope to race a deck like Hogak? Well, you can with your thing in the ice draws. So yeah. you're, you're very, very dependent on thing in the ice. Uh, and uh, or you know, disrupting them into a fast aria, but it's hard to disrupt them because your graveyard hate is not particularly good. So you have to play something that you don't want to play, like Leyline. But you, you're you you still beat them. 
a fair amount of the time with your thing draws, but they have plenty of answers to thing in the ice. They're all main decking some number of copies of Lightning Axe. Yeah. Between main and sideboard, they have Lightning Axe, Assassin's Trophy, and Fatal Push. They are not really afraid of any other part of your deck. Trophy also handles Aria, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so they can yeah. afford to cut away from their engine a little bit and play five, six, seven answers to your main threats and then get you into this game where you've answered their thing in the ice and now you have to play an interactive game while you're sitting there digging for another thing or digging for an Aria. Uh, you know, maybe you're lucky and you get to clock them with some Phoenixes. Those are games you can win too. Um, but you're usually just like hoping to stick a turn two thing and transform it on turn three and then figure out a way to win from there. But because Hogak is an 8-8 and pretty easy to recast after you bounce their board with thing, he's yeah. often you're bouncing. You know, when they cast their turn two Hogak, it's usually off of like turn one Stitcher's Flyer, turn two Seder Wayfinder. In turn three, they can recast both those cards, mill over what they need to delve, and recast the Hogak immediately. So, you know, their bread and butter draw of this, those two into Hogak, thing in the ice doesn't really do much against. So sure. a lot of the changes from the bridge build to the current build were quite bad for Is It Phoenix. I think you were significantly better at beating the bridge builds. And I've heard plenty of people say that the bridge ban actually just forced people to build their Hogak decks correctly. And they think even, even if bridge got unbanned tomorrow, people would still play builds that look more like the ones we see now, which might be the case. I, I don't know. I don't have enough expertise here to, to say that one way or another, um, but I, I don't think it's unreasonable. Can't wait for that article from Ian Duke to be <laughs> yeah. like, oh, hey, this is ban- Hogak's banned, but Bridge from Below is totally unbanned, guys. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. That'd be, that would be fine. I, I own a set of Bridges. I'm, I'd be okay with that. <laughs> And kind of the last thing you talked about in your article, at least at least kind of last big bullet, was the influence of the London Mulligan. And this is kind of something that we talked about when the London Mulligan was sort of being tested and when we were testing it. And and I think we kind of mentioned, I think we were kind of on the record saying that, you know, decks like Phoenix didn't really seem to get the same benefits that other decks did, where Phoenix seems to kind of want to have just cards. Like, right, they're not looking for, you're not looking for a specific set of cards necessarily. Just cards are good resources for a deck like Phoenix versus many other decks, they're going to mulligan to like the four cards they need, right? So, is that something you think that Phoenix just is going to lose a few percentage points because they don't get the same advantages of the London Mull? Yeah, that is the current uh, thesis that I'm working under. And I think while that might not seem like a lot, um, if you really consider it, it ends up you know, adding up because this is percentage points almost across the board in modern. When you think about something like the rise of Hogak, you know, 20% of the field's playing Hogak, and it's a matchup that is not very good for you, but it's, it's not you know, abysmal. You know, let, let's throw out an arbitrary 45% number. So we've added this 45% matchup, uh, and that's taken over 20% of the metagame. But honestly, it's replaced a lot of what Dredge was taking up before. That was an unfavorable matchup, and maybe some other ones, you know, uh, that might be a little bit better than Dredge. How many, you know, how 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 many percentage points in an average metagame are you losing uh, from the rise of that? Pretty significant. But when you consider, you know, is it a full two or three percentage points, which is what you might be losing against every single, virtually every single deck uh, because of the London Mulligan, especially things like Tron, uh, things like Dredge and Hogak, the, those linear decks, which are what, you know, those are the decks that, I, we've struggled with as is it Phoenix players, you know, everybody likes to think of is it Phoenix as a sort of like busted linear graveyard deck. And that's not what it is at all. It's more of a mid range deck, uh, just a very powerful one with a strong proactive game plan. 
But the reason that I put the deck together and played it in the first place was that metagame in November was a lot of humans and a lot of spirits. Mm -hmm. And so I main decked three copies of Gutshot, and they were great. People were still playing things like Hardened Scales then, too, and Infect. And so the Gutshots were incredible, and they were killing things all over the place. You know, having, you know, four main deck bolts and lightning axes and gut shots and eventually flame slash, uh, or just having eight or ten removal spells in your main deck uh, was well positioned. They're not well positioned right now, but uh, what we have instead is a metagame of these linear decks that are bad for you, but they're promoted by the London Mulligan. So there's, a, there's the losing percentage points across the board, and also the way the London Mulligan has shifted us more towards a... Uh, linear metagame and the linear metagame is one where mid-range decks are at least mid-range decks that don't have a ton of disruption like maybe jund although jund hasn't done very well either um are, are going to suffer so you know it, it's tough to say right now because i think everybody thinks hogak is going to get banned at the end of this month or the beginning of next whenever the next announcement is yeah it's like uh, three weeks or something the 29th yeah and, yeah and it's hard to judge exactly you know how big these factors are individually because right now we're seeing the the confluence of all of them and they're all working in congress together to suppress is it phoenix so you know after a hogak ban let's say that happens you know where does this metagame go it, it unlocks a lot of modern horizons cards that maybe you didn't see a lot of play before i think decks especially with giver of runes get significantly better and they've already seen a little bit of play uh so we'll have to wait and see what goes on with that yeah I mean, I think it's interesting because I think that there's a sense of the the those of us on the podcast kind of, and I think a number of the people that we talk to as far as like our listeners go, that there's been a real sea change in in modern. And I think the idea that you brought up about it time being time to put down Is It Phoenix is maybe emblematic of a lot of things going on in modern at the moment. And so I think we might want to kind of transition to talk a little bit more about, you know, if we could have a discussion about kind of the modern metagame at the 10,000 foot level, especially when it comes to things like what you just mentioned, as far as unlocking cards in modern horizons go, and also the London Mulligan's kind of long-term effects on, on modern in general and kind of where we go from here. I think one of the things that's super interesting, you know, the, the question I was going to ask everybody was just kind of, if this is a symbol of what's going on in modern, then kind of w what are the, the symptoms really? And in some ways, you know, I mean, I have kind of a, one thing in mind in particular is that um, Modern Horizons and War of the Spark were are really kind of redefining the format in general. And I think that one of the best sources of data I've seen from this is from the ELO, the Magic ELO project, which has been tracking like the number of cards from individual sets that show up in Modern Five O's. I've talked about this previously. Modern Horizons is up to ninety seven cards from the set have showed up in in Modern Five O lists. And War of the Spark has had 64 cards show up if in Modern 5.0 lists at one, one time or another. Now, it's not really a way to get to format staples necessarily because any card shows up. But in the case of Modern Horizons, it's almost 40% of the set has been in a Modern 5.0 list. And War of the Spark, it's almost 25%. Just yeah. insane. Those numbers are crazy. Is there a benchmark to compare those numbers to? Um, the, the closest one to that, I'm looking at the list right now, is so are those the two highest? The um, Modern Horizons is first, and War of the Spark is fourth. Okay, Amonkhet is third with sixty-eight, and then most sets are kind of in the forty-card range. Which still so blows my mind. Yeah, it's kind of like a third in the in the case of uh, War of the Spark, it's kind of fifty percent more. And in the case of Modern Horizons, it's more than double what the average is. Yeah, that is very impressive, but I don't think 
particularly surprising, both very powerful sets. And I, I agree, they've been doing a lot of redefining what's going on. You know, um, I actually wrote an article. Oh, it would have been at the end of the year where Fatal Push was released. So Fatal Push was two years ago. Yeah, I think that's so they, right. The, and yeah, then only in, two, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or well, two and a half, right? Because it, it was released in February. Right. Um, and so the following, the December after that, after that year, and that was the year almost almost similar to this one, right? We saw, uh, we didn't have a deck as broken as Hogak, but what you saw was an introduction of a very powerful card. In this case, we've got multiples of those kinds of cards, but with Fatal Push, I think it was incredibly powerful and it fundamentally shifted the balance of power in Modern because we had been so used to a format defined by Path Exile and Lightning Bolt. And threats that dodged those or punished them, forced you to cast Path earlier than you would have liked, um, were quite good. One, The primary one being Tarmogoyf. And now we saw this incredibly efficient one-man answer to Tarmogoyf, and we turned it to the Death Shadow archetype to leverage Fatal Push most effectively, because it also played uh, two threats that dodged Bolt and Path, which were still popular, and also one that dodged, uh, not dodge Path, but like uh, if they had to path on turn two, you're happy. Um, and then one of them in Gurmag Ankler that dodged Fatal Push entirely. So uh, the those decks became very popular, almost dominant. There were some calls for bans. Uh, and I would say it was about as dominant as Isaac Phoenix was. Um, the, the Death Shadow variants over a similar time frame. But eventually the metagame adapted. Maybe some new cards were printed that helped out. Uh, you know, the, the Storm decks took shape towards the end of that season. Scapeshift decks got a little bit popular for a brief time, but the real big one was in the fall when we got unclaimed territory and the humans deck arrived. Humans was quite good at punishing uh, discard decks or discard spells and punishing the amount of damage that the Death Shadow decks deal to themselves uh, because they're so redundant and so low curved, and then had Reflector Mage, which was actually quite good against both Death Shadow and especially against Gurmag Angler. Uh, and Meddling so- Mage to deal with Storm. Yes, and that was a big thing. So, he, and then, uh, and by the end of the year, we got to a point where, uh, and people had sort of figured out how to adapt a fatal push. There was also um, uh, Mantis Rider, you know, a card that I think before Fatal Push had been printed when Lightning Bolt was king would have been almost unplayable because it just dies to Lightning Bolt. And so, but this was so good against Fatal Push, and Fatal Push had gotten so popular and it almost supplanted Lightning Bolt that we got to a point where uh, you could play cards that were more vulnerable to Lightning Bolt because they matched up a little bit better against Fatal Push and forced them to have the fetch land. Uh, so I think we've gone through a similar cycle now where um, this like really dominant mid-range deck had elements to it that the rest of the field were not prepared to answer. You know, the Is It Phoenix deck, I don't think had a singular card like Fatal Push that uh, put it over the top, but it had threats that were very disparate. You know, you, 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 people thought you needed Graveyard Hate to beat it because it was named after Phoenix, but in reality, it's a thing in the ice deck, so you really needed good removal against thing in the ice. Fortunately, it came at a time where Fatal Push was way down, because Push is very good against thing, uh, and Lightning Bolt was well-positioned because of the way uh, humans had warped the metagame, and so it, it was able to take over from there. But now we've got we got a lot more, you know, Death Shadow earlier this year hasn't been good recently, uh, but we also moved finally towards a linear cycle in the metagame, which happened very briefly uh, with Storm until humans was able to take over post-Shadow. Uh, but uh, here, I think it's been a, a little bit more pronounced. So what I'm hearing from this history lesson, thank you for that, by the way, 
Yeah, which is great. It, it, we actually had a question about this, <laughs> about if this has ever happened before, and you kind of naturally went right into it. So that's awesome. Yeah. And, and But what I'm really hearing is like, there's modern has this history of a deck emerging that's really dominant that the format is not prepared to answer. And then everyone kind of shapes their deck and the meta around it. And eventually either new cards are printed or new strategies emerge that can answer this new dominant threat. And that's kind of like the cycle onward forever. But one of the things when you bring that up, Stan, though, is I think one of the things that we're hearing from people is that they're like, well, modern feels like it's rotating now in a way. Like modern feels like it rotated at least once with Horizons and with War of the Spark. And you know, that's just with this influx of all these new, very powerful cards. And, you know, what do you all think about that? Do you feel, Ross and, and the rest of you all, is that, you know, the format has r- rotated in some way because we've had, you know, dozens, literally dozens of, of new cards hit the format and make a huge impact? You know, we've seen a fundamental shift like we did with the introduction of Fatal Push and like we did with the evolution of Is It Phoenix? You know, they fundamentally reshaped the format and the terms of engagement of the format. But I don't think we would have seen a continued dominance of Is It Phoenix even had these sets not been as powerful as they were. You know, even if Modern Horizons didn't exist uh, and you cut it out of the format and maybe toned down War of the Spark 2, I still think we were seeing pushes towards the format adapting to Is It Phoenix. It was already uh, off of its peak uh, with things like the War Prison deck, uh, you know, the is it phoenix deck having to you know uh scavenge itself to be able to be better in mirrors hurts it against the field uh and that is a, just a punishment for a deck getting too uh popular and, and creates a sort of cap on how popular and successful it can be you know and that same thing was happening with uh with grixis shadow you know by the fall when humans really emerged grixis shadow was not nearly as dominant as it had been that april that spring uh, when it was 10, 15, 20% of the metagame consistently and putting multiple copies into most top eights. So while we see the, the fundamental shift at the end uh, is more of like the nail in the coffin for that dominant deck rather than the beginning of the end, um, we, because there's already, it's come at a time when the deck is already weakened uh, by the, the rest of the metagame adapting around it. And then you've now thrown in a deck that can take advantage of that metagame, but is also excellent against whatever the dominant deck had been before. So it's interesting to hear you say that because I think there's a lot of vibes right now of people being kind of like, it's never been this much before, but it feels like your kind of point of view is a little bit more kind of longer term than maybe a lot of people are, are, are or you are just kind of more hooked in than, than most kind of of our audience is, you know, ca- the casual spike audience, the people who are trying to, to win their FNMs, you know, when it, you pay attention on a daily basis to the way the metagame is is shifting. This just feels like it's a natural evolution that's sort of inevitable, even in a format like modern. When you say it's never been this much, are you referring to is it Phoenix or Hogak? Uh, referring to this moment where referring to Hogak, like and, and the speed never, of change, the speed yeah. of change, the amount of change has never been as much, and the impact yeah. of two back to back sets. Is it's, I think that that's the feeling, but I you know you're kind of an objective observer, you know. Well, Hogak is a is a different animal entirely. It's just a broken deck. This yeah. is just Eldrazi Winter again, right? You know, and the and the deck is going to get banned. So I I hear there's a lot of you know, and I don't think they're particularly serious arguments. I think they're more meme-y, and that's why you see them on Twitter. There's a lot of people throwing out takes on Twitter about like you know Hogak is so broken, uh, and 
but obviously like we can't have splinter trainer we can't have all the cards that people clamor to get unbanned stoneforge mystic sometimes preordain and ponder which makes absolutely no sense yeah the most ridiculous thing i've ever unbanned punishing fire uh, that's that's my new position yeah yeah whatever card that people want they use the existence of hogak as an excuse they're like why can't we have this if we have hogak but it's it's not like hogak is okay so you're not actually comparing it to a fair benchmark here you know compare it to is a phoenix compare it to grix's shadow two and a half years ago uh, compare it to humans. Those are the benchmarks that you should be comparing it to because those are decks that have been the top deck in fairly healthy modern formats. And I'm of the ilk that modern has been very healthy ever since that banning of Probe and uh, Grave Troll, the, the rebanning of it, and the printing of Fatal Push. I think from that moment, which has been about two and a half years now, with the exception of this recent you know, Hogak printing, modern has been a balanced and healthy and fun uh, format and very successful towards Wizards goals and what I think their goals should be. Uh, so, um, you know, there have been different periods where certain decks were really popular and, and really dominant. I think the three that I just mentioned, Humans, Phoenix, and Shadow, you know, there, there was the banning of Ironworks. Oddly enough, you know, Ironworks never really entered that 10 to 20% level. Um, and that's generally because people shy away from decks like that. Um, but it, it, we recognize that they're broken and we ban them anyway. For sure. Russ, one of the things that we've been talking about here and curious to get your feedback is what do you think about the impact of Modern Horizons itself? Like, is this something that you think is cool? Is this just like kind of a nice way to shake up Modern? Um, Modern, I thought, was feeling somewhat stable um, until Modern Horizons. And now, especially with Hogak, of course, but even post-Hogak, I can imagine all sorts of decks existing that didn't exist before, didn't have the power level before. Yeah. Uh, so in, in a general sense, a deck or a, a set like Modern Horizons, you know, what, what do I think of them at like, making a set that's specifically meant to have a lot of playable cards for the format? At this point, I thought it was unnecessary, but, you know, Wizards are going to do things that they think are going to make money. Yeah. Uh, this is a set that I think has made them a, a fair amount of money because it's pretty popular. Yeah, if you believe their earnings call, their Q2 earnings call was it was specifically called out by name by the CEO like five times on the earnings call. Like it was wild to read a transcript where an analyst from Goldman Sachs was asking the CEO of Hasbro, so what do you think about Modern Horizons? I was like, okay, <laughs> sure. You're saying iBankers don't play Magic the Gathering, Dave? I'm, you know, I'm sure they do. <laughs> as, uh, as far as Modern Horizons specifically, uh, and the cards that they've chosen to include, obviously outside of the clear mistake that is Hogak, it seems pretty cool. There's a lot of cards that have made, you know, not huge impacts, but somewhat imp- like somewhat impactful things like Aria Flame, Lava Dart, Giver of Runes, uh, Urza the Artificer, blah blah blah. Yeah, um, you know these are all cards that have either helped out existing archetypes or, in some cases, sort of spawned new archetypes or really invigorated them. Uh, not just made a small small increase in them. And I, it's unfortunate right now because because of Hogak, we haven't really been able to see the full effect of Modern Horizons. So uh, I'm still reserving judgment to some extent, but I am uh, hopefully optimistic about the overall and long-term impact of the set. Did anyone else feel that in the week or two after Bridge from Below got banned, that we were in this very brief, beautiful, golden period before people figured out that Satyr Wayfinder and Hedron Crab were the new answer to Hogak, where like, we started seeing Ranger Captain decks, we started seeing Ice Fang Codal decks, and we started to really see what the format was capable of becoming. Well, I mean, we rolled up to go to that Den- to Denver to visit Shane and play in that MCQ, and I think a lot of us 
that day, that Saturday, we were kind of like, yeah, there's all these interesting new decks. And I was, we were like, can we play Lightning Skelemental and, and Unearth and Dreadhorde Arcanist and just all these like sweet things. And then we went back to Shane's house after the MCQ and, and, looked on Twitter and <laughs> Canister was on there tweeting yeah, at Ian. He was tweeting at Ian Duke. Here's my deck list, <laughs> Ian Duke. <laughs> I think it's still broken, you know, so. Yeah, so you yeah, got like, your answer. No. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so what do you think, Ross? I think there's going to be a Horizons 2, like the, uh, next year, two years, they have like the nice two-year gap, like the Modern master sets. Yeah, that I, I hate to make you speculate, me. but. Yeah, I'm, I I tended not to, you know, my job is to, you know, do the best with what we're given, and it doesn't really do a lot of good to speculate on what will be given, uh, especially because it really, for me, comes down to what the individual cards are. So, you know, the fact that there will be a Modern Horizons set is not generally a big deal as opposed to what is in it. Uh, so, but uh, based on the, you know, financial response that they've gotten, uh, th- that's the biggest feedback that they have that they'll work with. It seems positive, so I, I would not be at all surprised and generally be expecting a Modern Horizons 2. Yeah, I think the only thing that's going to prevent it will be fatigue. Like, if let's let's say they, for whatever reason, roll out Horizons 2 like next year, I don't think they're going to have the same level of positivity because I think people... Be, I think people feel exhausted with keeping up with spoilers. They feel exhausted mentally and financially, like we've talked about, you know, on on our pods. So, no, I don't want to rehash it, but I'm curious how fast they're going to try to, you know, push the standardization of modern, at least in their monetization. And I think if they're going to have to look at what the response is to this core set, because I have to imagine that the response was diminished based on the hype that was existing around Modern Horizons and the very short you know, uh, turnaround time between those two sets. Uh, you know, just from my experience doing versus live, you know, preview season is generally some of our most fruitful time. There's tons of new cards. We get to work with all of them. We usually get to work with them the day of, day after, which is really nice for our viewers. Uh, and we've grown used to that and really look forward to preview seasons. But we had so much to look at with Modern Horizons and people were really clamoring for it that we went straight up until the week that everything was, uh, the set was fully previewed for Corset 2020, that, that, you know, gets released on a Friday, the full set list. That following week leading into the pre-release was the first time we had played with those cards. And we felt like we barely knew what the cards were. We had no time to look at them because we were so focused on Modern Horizons. You know, there was a team Modern event around that time at the end of June. Uh, and the, the turnaround was so fast, we barely got to look at them. And on top of that, we didn't think that we were really losing anything. I don't think our audience was that excited about Corset 2020. I think they were still just clamoring for Modern Horizons, at least until everybody figured out Hogak. So if they see a very, you know, uh, a reduced, you know, uh, financial return from the Corset 2020 release, then, you know, maybe you have to look at those two things in concert. You know, how did the three sets, uh, you know, War of the Spark, Modern Horizons, and Corset 2020 compare to the two sets they released the previous year? Uh, and then see how much better, you know, uh, adding the, the Modern Horizon set did versus how much you know money they invest in, you know, designing all the cards and printing everything. Um, so that that might be the way they have to look at it. And, and you know, obviously, I'm not privy to things like that, but I could definitely see them looking at that, seeing coming back from the high from their quarter two return, saying, you know, maybe this wasn't as good because we really just sort of scavenged some of what we would uh, profit from the the core set. And put it into this other set, and we really weren't gaining anything on, on the aggregate. Um, 
And if that happens, yeah, we'll see a little bit more lag time as they sort of try to suss out maybe a better way to space these sets. Because they don't have to space the four sets out evenly anymore, right? Because like, you know, the MCs, they can just schedule anytime. They're not linking them to sets anymore. It might make it awkward for standard to have certain sets, you know, uh, have less time between them. But, but, you know, a month or two here is probably not going to make a huge difference. Yeah, here's hoping they schedule more MCs, right? Yeah, <laughs> let's hope let's hope they just schedule any because at this point, who knows? Yeah, there's nothing after Richmond. Th- that's for another podcast, I think. Yeah, take it to other podcast, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Why'd you bring that up? So it feels like the banning of Hogak has kind of become a foregone conclusion. And every podcast I listen to, every article I read, everyone seems to be talking about it. People are stopping you on the street. Stanislav from the hit podcast that Dive Down. Sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, people are looking at the next BNR, which I I have it on the 26th as like the likely date to ban Hogak unless R&D steps in, does something, you know, in the interim. Nah, that's that's right before SEG Dallas, isn't it? There's three modern GPs in a row, though. The next three weekends. Are we really going to sit here? I mean, is that going to happen? It's going to happen for a, the very least the first one. And I would be pretty surprised unless they got like Eldrazi level dominance, uh, if it didn't happen for the second one as well. I think if they see the second weekend go really poorly because everybody is burnt out from the first one and they just see the writing on the wall, maybe you'll see them shake it up for the third. But there, there's a hard cap on, on linear decks that you don't see with non-linear decks that achieve a level of dominance. You know, there, there's a reason that in the history of Magic, the decks that have the highest percentage are Eldrazi and Cobblade and not things like Dredge and uh, Hokak and KCI. Because they don't let it happen. It's just about the way people like to play Magic. Yeah, people like exactly. playing fair magic. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think people really love. We didn't talk about this earlier, but um, again, Leyland of the Void was the most popular card um, out of the top thirty-two of the challenge. There was f- for fifty copies of it uh, in forty-three point seven five percent of the decks, and that. I mean, of course, you can say, okay, well, Hogek didn't take over the top thirty-two. There were four copies in the top thirty-two, right? It's only one eighth, big deal. But that just requires like the skewing of people's sideboards. And then that opens up, I mean, you can say this one or two things. You can say it's either positive or it's a negative, right? Well, you know, if people focus on the graveyard with Leyline, then that may open up an opportunity for uh, hardened scales. Or you can say that, you know, people skewing their choices in such a manner is just a net negative for the format because it removes choice by having to respond to a deck with such power like the Hogak variants. And, and it ratchets up the variance of the format, right? You know, if you're forced to take four to six of your sideboard slots and use them to fight Hogak just to have a fighting chance in the matchup, then, you know, that's four to six slots that aren't going elsewhere. And sometimes people can take advantage of that. You know, there, there was a little bit less Tron hate around the time of the MC uh, and that weekend. And that's why one of the reasons I think you saw it take home both trophies you know, the people weren't playing Alpine Moons and Blood Moons and, and even things like Stony Silence that are traditionally good against Tron or Ceremonious Rejection because they just didn't have room for them. Uh, so, the, the, you know, so you can play the guessing game and hope that you're, you end up on the right deck that people aren't preparing for on that weekend because they have to over-prepare for these broken linear decks. Or you can simply take the safe choice and play the broken linear deck, uh, which a lot of people go to. But the, the, the fact that there are hate cards like this that shut down Hogak to some degree uh, and all of these other linear decks is the other factor that keeps them from being 30 to 40% and, you know, six of the top eight, you know, that we do have some recourse where you didn't really have recourse for Eldrazi or for Callblade. You know, those decks were too well-rounded. They could beat you in too many different ways while also being incredibly powerful. So they just had good matchups against basically every deck in the format. Um, you know, I'm sure somebody will 
comment about how their deck had a good matchup against Callblade or against Eldrazi. Everybody says things like that, uh, but they're generally wrong. So, you know, it's always the fair broken decks that end up being the 40 percenters, and they're the ones that are, are truly the most broken, whereas these end up being about, you know, 20%. And it's unfair to compare the two heads up. Uh, and you have to say, you know, well, if this was 20% and still, you know, either the first or second most successful deck, while we had a format where every single person or half the field was playing four Leyline of the Void and the other half was playing like three Ravenous Traps and three Rest in Pieces and Yixil Jailers and, you know, like everybody's got minimum four pieces of Graveyard Hate, maybe more, a lot of it in the main, uh, and the deck is still performing as a tier one option. You know, that, that's a problem. We should, linear decks are designed so that those are checks that push them out of the metagame for some amount of time, right? If we're seeing that that density uh, and that penetration of graveyard hate into the metagame, we should be seeing the graveyard decks being bad choices and being unsuccessful. If we see a deck that's able to power through it and you know still put up tier one results, that's a sign that it's a problem. So let's say the prediction is accurate that Hogak eats a ban at the end of the month and the format as we know it right now essentially rotates right at the end of August. We still have about a month or so where we either have to make the most out of the modern that we know of now there's i think dave mentioned three magic fests between now and the bnr uh i think some of us are probably spending time considering what to do after bnr and what the format is going to look like and try to be prepared for the evolutions to come if you're going to play at an event in the next month uh, and you're playing modern and for one reason or another, Hogak isn't an option for you. Is it kind of, do you think it's kind of Tron or bust? Or do you think, you know, one deck that I've been liking still is Mono Red Phoenix. I don't know if that's got some space in the meta too. Um, I don't know. Do you have a, a kind of alternate uh, for you, Ross? Or do you think you're just all in on, I'm playing, I'm going to play the best Hogak? For me personally, I'll be playing Hogak. I think there are plenty of options that have seen some moderate success in this metagame. We saw, you know, Monogreen Tron, a little Eldrazi Tron. I'm not as high on that one. Like you said, the Monored Phoenix or Prowess decks. Hardened Scales. Uh, you know, uh, Corey Baumeister and I did a, a Versus Live recently where we played Hogak against three of the decks that supposedly have good matchups against it, and one of them was Hardened Scales, and it was the one match that I was able to win. He, uh, he was playing the, the Hogak side. It's the deck he played at the MC. Uh, he was playing his list, and the Hardened Scales deck was able to just sort of go over the top of the Hogak deck, you know, sometimes I played an Arcbound Ravager on turn three and he couldn't attack because it was going to be able to be a 10-10 and, and trump the Hogak. Um, so th that was impressive. Um, I also played Tron and um, the Urza deck. And the Urza deck, based on the numbers I've seen, their small sample size, is supposed to have a fairly good matchup against Hogak. You know, it plays main deck Cage and main deck Nile Spellbomb, which aren't great, but in game one, you know, aren't bad, has the option to play Leyline in its sideboard, has a turn three combo. You know, you, you can assemble Urza plus both pieces of Thopter Sword as early as turn three and, and gain uh, an unbounded amount of life. Uh, and they don't really have an answer to that. And then... Um, ensnaring Bridge, right? And, the, and then you have Ensnaring Bridge. That, uh, so you have a lot of different elements to help you in that matchup. I wasn't able to win there, but that's an option uh, as well. I think that those three Ross uh, I've I've been saying and mostly in jest but I think slightly based on the data we're getting that it, I'm pretty serious that 
I, I think after Hogak is gone, that we're going to see even more people sort of move towards the the word based strategies. Even though you know they're not as popular, people don't love that style of magic. But that's what we saw with KCI: is people realized it's not as tough as they thought to play. People, you know, were, were writing good guides on how to play it. More people were picking it up, and it became more of a problem because more people were playing it and getting better with it. Do you see kind of the same risk with a deck like Wurza? I think you have your causations a little bit backwards. Um, that's fair. And that's a, that's a problem for Urza. So with, with the ironworks versus were prison decks, I think what happened was ironworks was an obviously excellent deck that was too powerful and it got the ax after that, the cards that people were playing to beat it, you know, the, the stony silences, the uh, various pieces of graveyard hate that were good in the matchup. You know, I, I had one ley line of the void in my Phoenix sideboard to help there. Um, and you know, ceremonies rejection, anything like that, uh, we saw them diminish as people were more preparing to beat things like burn that was rising at the time because of light of the stage and, and secure the critics and whatever else was in the metagame because it felt like you know that was a hole that uh, or, or that you no longer needed to fill because it got banned and that actually opened up the war decks to be uh, a little bit better. The same way, like once Hogak, if if slash when Hogak gets banned. I expect Dredge to be a pretty good choice the following week as people finally say, oh, I can cut down, way down on all this graveyard hate, and then you can take advantage. Uh, that's what I was hoping for after Bridge. Uh, yeah, and, and I, th- I think a lot of people were looking at that. I think you saw a good amount of Dredge in, in that week, um, and you know some people leave it in, a lot don't. Um, and I think that helped out the War decks a lot, though they were good for a time. The issue I see uh, where the... Uh, the Urza decks are not going to be afforded the same luxury. Is that you know the the Hogak decks are are getting banned in this scenario, and that was one of the matchups that has propelled that deck. You know it's supposed to be quite good in the matchup, and that there's some data to support that. And so you're actually losing a good matchup. And Graveyard Hate is okay against the deck, in particular like Leyline and Recipes because it stops the Thopter Sword combo, but it's by no means great. And I think there are better cards in the matchup. You know, Stony Silence is quite good. That's not a card we're seeing really any of right now, and a card that could really pick up in a post-Hogak metagame because there's still going to be Tron, there's still going to be Eldrazi Tron, and it's not great in that matchup, but it's serviceable. Um, and, and you can see better options come to the forefront to help people uh, defeat the, the War deck. So you might actually see that deck decline and then sort of a, a metagame shift around something else that is was either suppressed directly by Hogak or just didn't match up well against the decks that beat Hogak. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, so what should people be playing if they you know, they don't have the luxury, perhaps, of, of, of pivoting decks often? Uh, maybe they don't play online, so they can't use like a card rental service. Should they be modifying their sideboards very heavily should they maybe try to you know if they if they have burn they could look at maybe playing you know mono red phoenix like what do you advise people who are you know on the more casual end of things when they're faced with a metagame quite like this i mean it depends on the deck you're trying to play interesting you brought up burn i think that's another deck that has a reasonable hogak matchup uh you know unlike dredge that has four built-in free lightning helixes you know the the hogak deck is really uh, life gain free and generally deals itself a lot of damage with its lands. Oh yeah, you know, they, they want to fetch Blood Crypt and then fetch Overgrown Tomb unless they draw their uh, Blackleaf Cliffs. So they're spending six life on the first two turns in a lot of games, and you know not much less than that in, in the games where they're you know, lucky and they even draw Blackleaf Cliffs or can have the luxury of fetching for a swamp or 
draw a basic swamp naturally, things like that. So burn. Not to mention that like seemingly half their creatures literally cannot block. Yeah, you know, you, you can uh, you can clear out a blocker or two. Sometimes like sometimes they don't want to block your turn one goblin guide or turn two swift spear because they need that creature to tap for Hogak on the following turn too. And it's not like once the Hogak comes down, you don't need to get in a third, fourth attack with your goblin guides. So the second one is, is the second attack and your one mana spell dealing four damage uh, is usually good enough. So, um, you know, the a burn is a deck that you, you can look to that isn't that expensive. Um, so uh, if you're lucky enough to be already playing a deck that you think is good against Hogak, you know, by all means, continue playing that deck because I don't think it'll be worth it for you, especially if you have to buy the cards for a deck that's going to get banned. You know, stick with that deck. If you're unlucky and you're playing a deck that is pretty bad in the matchup, something like Amulet Titan, you know, haven't seen a lot of that deck recently um, because Hogak is just a little bit faster than uh, Dredge to the battlefield. So like your turn three Titan, find Bajuka Bog, or turn four Titan, find Bajuka Bog, really doesn't do a lot, whereas it did uh, a fair amount against Dredge. No, oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> and, and so, and and like their Hogak can more easily attack and do things like that. So, um, you know, if you're de- if you're playing a deck that is not good against Hogak, I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. Like, you know, the, these are not problems. <laughs> just be patient. Yeah, either be patient. You know, maybe try to borrow a different deck, or just you know try to figure out the matchup uh, on your own, or at the very least try to set yourself up to beat everything else. Yeah. You know, sometimes yeah. you can have a deck. You know. That that is, if you're good against eighty percent and bad against the twenty, you know that's still a fine place to be. Uh, and maybe that's the way you want to go. Just ignore the Hogak matchup. Don't have any hate at all. You know, you know per, if you get paired against them, just cross your fingers and pray. That might be the best way to go. But it, it's so contextual; it's hard for me to offer generic advice because it really depends on what decks you have access to. You know, what decks you're comfortable playing, and then the position of those specific decks. Yeah, and the other thing we're cognizant of is that a lot of our listeners are. LGS players who have one and a half decks, right? They've got like maybe is it Phoenix and Mono Red Phoenix or like humans and spirits, etc. Yeah, twenty percent of the room's not going out and buying Hogak for the you know Friday night magic. Yeah. That too. And the people that do, <laughs> no one wants to play against them anyway. Stan, that's judgmental. You're usually trying to avoid that. People that can seed. play the best deck. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. I love playing the best deck. But, but there are plenty plenty of people that don't. I think it's worth noting that like even the decks that maybe can't play for Leyland of the Void, which I think like sometimes will get you there against Hogak, but sometimes not even. They still have a ton of options for graveyard hate, as well as like tools to sometimes win in a fair interactive game. So for instance, like even a deck like Blue White Control, I think having four Path to Exile, some board wipes, settle the wreckage, and Snapcaster Mage to double up on those paths, like that'll sometimes let you steal a game one and usually stealing game one is the most important thing you can do in blue white. Yeah, no, I agree. I think a lot of people fail to consider, you know, just a general game plan that's going to help you in the matchup. That was a big reason why is it Phoenix was so successful early on because everybody mistook it as this graveyard deck, uh, which it had been initially with the Bedlam Reveler builds, but I had so many people bringing in rest in peace and Leyline the void against me, which was the big impetus for adding crackling Drake. Uh, and mm-hmm. I was able to dodge those cards so effectively and win through them so easily that uh, you know people weren't preparing for me in the right way. And it took the the hive mind a few months to adapt and say, you know what? Maybe we, instead of all this graveyard hate for Arclight Phoenix, we should just be having fatal pushes for these thing in the ices because you know I can beat a three two flyer, but I can't beat a seven eight that bounces my entire battlefield. So 
you know, maybe I'm looking at this the wrong way. And there was a, a brief dip. I had one bad weekend in there where everybody finally adjusted and I hadn't adjusted uh, fully yet uh, with more threats on my sideboard to help against those removal heavy strategies. Um, so, you know, those kinds of things can really help you. You know, that's one of the reasons that I think hardened skills is an attractive choice is that you can pretty easily beat Hogak just playing your own game plan. And the synergies that deck has with heart, the namesake card are incredibly powerful. They can win the game as early as turn three. And even if you're not winning the game, you can threaten to make a creature that is bigger than Hogak that trumps the battlefield. And usually it's the hardened skills player that has an easier time breaking through once that happens, because you can win outside of the combat step with a giant walking ballista hmm. and you can win in the air with ink moth nexus. And mm -hmm. while the, uh, oh, what's called the Hogak deck does have lightning axe. And usually that's not going to be good enough. They, they usually need it early in order to do anything. And it's another deck that gets helped out a lot by the London Mulligan. You know, you're searching for hands that start on hardened scales. And oftentimes it doesn't matter if they're six or five cards. If you start on hardened scales into one of your two drops, into a second one of your two drops, you know, the, that is going to be a really powerful start. So uh, uh, I think, you know, an, assuming that you need to be playing a deck that can easily have a ton of graveyard hate uh, is, you know, not always the case it's definitely a good place to be but it's not the only place you, that you can be yeah I, I feel like that's one thing that people can always learn when they're if they're trying to get better in a metagame that's like this is just you know combating that dominant deck directly is often not going to lead to the best matchup for you because you might give too, give too much up in your deck depending on what it is but doing something like you said picking a deck that can still be competitive while it does its own game its own game plan that just happens to be effective against a deck like Hogak or whatever the dominant game in the a deck in the metagame is, I think is a hard thing to learn, but I think it's important. You know, it's sort of like you gotta, you can't just do level one. You have to go to level two kind of. And we saw a deck like that pop up at the team open. The most recent one, the top four mm -hmm. had a pure steel paladin combo deck. You know, that is a deck that loses hard to a lot of matchups. It is horrible against Jund. You know, thought sees your first two drop lightning bolt. The second one, Play some Tarmogoyfs is not, not a, a good matchup, but against a Hogak deck that's just saying, okay, I've got 12 power on turn two, and you're like, well, you're dead on turn three, you know, th th then you're in good shape. So, uh, that, you know, there is, there's a lot of decks like that in modern. You know, the traditional one is Magoria's Vengeance, too much graveyard hate for that one, but things like Ad Nauseam, not as fast, but, you know, buy a lot of time with Angel's Grace and Darkness and uh, Phyrexian Unlife, you know, uh, things like... Uh, uh, Pure Steel Paladin like Hardened Scales. And another one that might be good is Breach Titan. That's a deck that can also main deck Chalice the Void. So you have a, a really strong piece of disruption against Hogak and the rest of the format. Simeon Spirit Guide to power down on turn one. And a deck whose Goldfish can kill as early as turn three. Maybe with Arboreal Grazer, you more consistently kill on turn three. So, so Ross, you know, once all the predictions come true and Hogak's gone at the end of the month, right? What do you think is going to happen? with the meta like what do you think people should be prepared for in the in the next month like you know there's so many other cards that people have been scared about you know they're they're newer cards um like car the great creator like teferi time raveler we have ren and six the urza decks that we mentioned earlier what do you think is going to happen um is this just kind of a brave new world of exploration that a hogak is kind of holding down right now or do you have your eyes on some stuff i would say the former the brave new world you know, it, it's really hard to try to figure out where everything is going to balance out. I, I could see a format with a lot of fair decks. You know, those decks have had a ratchet up in power level, various unearthed decks. 
that are pretty fair. You know, they're just creatures and removal spells. Things like Jund have gotten a real shot in the arm. Maybe like Mardu Pyromancer with the flashback lightning helix. Those kinds of fair decks. But in that world, you know, Tron, which is already seeing a, a small resurgence, uh, could be very, very good. Though I think its matchup uh, against fair decks has diminished recently with things like uh, Assassin's Trophy um, and Field of Ruin. And in particular, like one of the reasons I think Tron has gotten better in a Hogak metagame is the fact that Surgical Extraction is bad against Hogak. So we've seen people abandon their surgicals and play harder graveyard hate, but now they don't have that easy cyborg strategy against uh, against Tron, where they have their trophy, have their field of ruin to go along with surgical and cut you off Tron for the entire game. Uh, you know, instead they're unable to do that, and Tron is able to you know enact its same game plan and have a similar matchup that it had against Fairdex for five years in modern. But in a post Ogak metagame, if they're able to do that, you know, Tron might end up getting worse. So there's just too many variables to take into account. I do think the Urza, Urza as a card is really, really powerful. So even losing in a, in a good matchup, the Urza deck could be quite good, uh, but there's plenty of tools to deal with that. I think Azorius Control is another fair deck that could get more powerful. Um, you know, If I had to peg something, I think the metagame would get pretty fair. Because I think the fair decks have gotten a real shot in the arm from Modern Horizons, and we'll enter, you know, uh, um, we could enter a modern metagame like we saw five, six years ago, where it was like, Pod and Jund, and you know, there was Twin around, but Twin is kind of a, a fair deck as far as combo decks go. Um, you know, we could see a, a metagame with Jund and Is it Phoenix and Bardu Pyromancer and Zorius Control uh, being near the top, and then Humans uh, still around. Uh, like, is Giver of Runes really good against those decks? Unclear to me, you know, the, uh, but it, it seems to me that the, the power level outside of Hogak within Modern Horizons was placed into cards that encourage more fair creatures and removal spells and card advantage type of gameplay then it was placed in huge synergy pieces although you know you know urza's kind of a synergy card you have to build around it um you know there's a few things like that but nothing as blatantly linear as hogak is um so if i had to guess i would say we enter a, a modern metagame that most people would call like a golden age for me it'd be about the same well i mean for for you it's totally different though right just because you know since since you're a professional you, you adapt to you know the the prize for you is adapting to whatever metagame exists and kind of pushing forward it's it's different for for people who don't get to play all the time or have different goals out of their play right yeah my relationship with magic is a lot different than most people so the average magic player certainly much different than the majority of my readership um you know uh, i've been one you know my job is to just play the best decks and always win so i have that always at the back of my mind um that doesn't mean I'm always playing what I think is quote objectively the best deck because I I do want to play to my own strengths and weaknesses and I've done that uh, more often in the last year or two I think to some success, um, but it's just I think a lot of it just comes down to the fact that I've been around for so long and I've seen so many broken decks come and go, so many metagames come and go, so many decks come and go that I never have a huge attachment to a certain deck. Now, Is it Phoenix was an exception there. I do have an attachment to that deck one of my most successful decks I've ever played. So there are exceptions to that. You know, there's several throughout my history, but ultimately I'm never going to be too broken up about having to give up a deck. And I'm generally not going to stick to it much longer than I should because I have that emotional attachment to it. You know, I'm, I'm writing, I wrote right now that, you know, I'm going to put down as a Phoenix and we got Jerry Thompson writing an article a couple days later saying, you know, hold on there. I actually think the deck is good. So yeah, all it needed was more vapor snags and an extra set of drift. Yeah, we actually wanted to talk to you about that. 
uh, Ross. One of the things I was curious because like you're not to, I'm not I'm sure you guys don't have any actual beef here, but the, these call and response articles uh, on SCG have been a little bit more common recently. Do you? And one of the things I've noticed about Jerry and do appreciate about his point of view is I think that he does like to rely on a few tech cards. And I think that, you know, when I hear he and Brian talking on uh, arena deck lists, they definitely seem to value like, you know, the last two or three slots in a deck to do a lot of heavy lifting. And and in this case, I mean, he mentioned, you know, like, like Stan mentioned, what a vapor snag set adrift, even multiple running multiple set adrifts as an option. What do you think about that? Is that a realistic approach in this case, and do you think that kind of tech cards like that, your last two, three cards can make a huge difference? Well, it's uh, it's dependent on a few things, how much of a difference those last few slots make. And in both uh, cases right now, the, the variables point towards them making a pretty big difference. And those are, one, the deck that you're talking about. And in Is It Phoenix, you have a deck with a ton of cantrips that tears through uh, its library at a you know breakneck pace. So singleton cards you're going to see a lot more reliably than you do in other decks even in a deck that you know can end the game as early as turn four so you know changing those one or two cards makes a a larger difference in that than it does in say humans or hardened scales things like that with with much less card selection and then two is the metagame you're in now normally modern is a very wide format and a very diverse format and that generally points you towards playing more powerful cards as opposed to playing more techie cards because even if a deck is, you know, the most popular deck in the room is generally going to be eight to twelve percent, and that's just not a, a very big number. So you know, playing a less powerful card against sixty percent of the room to play a better card against forty percent of the room, uh, which is what you end up doing in that case more often than not, ends up being a, a net negative. Whereas it's a lot easier to be confident that those two techie cards are going to come up more often in a metagame like the current one where Hogak is 20% of the field and Tron is 10 to 15% of the field. And, you know, the top five or six decks are 60 to 70% of the field instead of 30 to 40% of the field. So with a more narrow metagame that also rewards having techier cards that are more prepared for that metagame because uh, you, you can make your predictions more accurately and more accurately get paid off for them. Uh, and then, you know, with a deck like Hogak, you get, or with like, is it Phoenix, you get paid off for diversifying your cards, you know, one of my lists that I really liked that I played right before Modern Horizons was the 32 cards that everyone plays, um, two copies of Pyromancer Ascension and like eight one-ups. Uh, like I played uh, right, two gut shots, I think, and six one-ups. So I had like one Snapcaster Mage, one Finale. The snap was to help against Narset, so you could like snap both on the unstep and kill it when it was on five. Uh, this was before a Magmatic Sinkhole, of course. So I had like those two as like the extra big cards that provided some card advantage. You know, I had one uh, flame slash, one lightning axe, one set adrift. You know, one of all of these things. And I figured between the snap and the finale, like I could get access to them in the graveyard or through my hand, and it really played out really well. I also had one crackling drake. Um, so I think you get paid off by diversifying. In this case, you, know, you the meta game is so broken that you you end up becoming a little bit less diverse because you just want cards that are good against Hogak to try to turn that matchup around. I've been a pretty big fan of Set Adrift in particular, um, you know, before Magmatic Sinkhole, and maybe I'm maybe it's right to, to play it now because you just need to deal with Hogak. Um, but that that I think you you know, for for these specific circumstances, those tacky cards are going to pay off. I wonder if other decks can start considering looking at specific tech cards to deal with a super dominant deck like Hogak. Like for instance, I wonder if people who are playing 
either five color humans or like trying that Jessica humans brew that we saw briefly in some five O lists, like whether they should be playing path and vapor snag or like other tools like that or, or spirits for that matter, other like tools like that, that are more designed to adapt to a very specific meta without necessarily diluting their game plan, but kind of changing their interaction suite because they're cognizant of, you know, what's around. But at the same time, like part of me just thinks you have to make those decisions based on what you're going to see at your store or what you're expecting to see in your community. If you go to like, uh, what is it? A PTQ or an MCQ or whatever. Uh, I agree that it's time to start thinking about doing things like that. It is harder to make changes like that in a deck with less velocity that, that sees less of its cards in an average game like humans does, because in order to get the benefit, you have to change, you know, more of your cards and then you're losing, you know, a larger edge against the rest of the field. Um, you know, for a deck like humans, the card I would generally look to is then something like Deputy of Detention, which is already a good card in the deck. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I like the lists that are main decking one or two copies and sideboarding one or two more, um, as opposed to trying out things like Militia Bugler that, that is still in a lot of lists or, or Kessig Malcontents. You know, I just want to deal with the Hogak because humans is pretty good at containing a battlefield of, you know, Blood Gas and Grave Crawlers and Vengevines. You, know, you got a counter on your Thalia, you got a blocker for a Vengevine. You can make a 5-5 five, five pretty easily. That blocks a Vengevine. Making a bunch of 3-3s, three you know, that you do with the first Thalia's Lieutenant. So that handles a lot of the rest of it. And then your Mantis Riders, you know, clock them in the air. Yeah, that was the the recipe against Dredge, and it worked pretty well in that matchup. So, you know... You got Oriac Champion out of the side, too, which is probably okay yeah. in that matchup as well. Yeah, that's a solid card. Unfortunately, does not block Hogak effectively, because, you know, they gave it a million keywords. But, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, that that... that yeah, that's another option. Those are all cards that have already seen play in the deck. You know, you just want to move towards those cards and rely on them more heavily, you know, increase their numbers as appropriate, uh, rather than look towards less powerful cards. You know, you mentioned Path to Exile. I think that's a solid one if you're playing a Jeskai list that has uh, available white mana, uh, and that's probably a card those lists are, are looking towards because that's one of the big things that you gain in going towards a mana base like that is the ability to cast spells that cost colored mana. Uh, and Path is certainly one of the most powerful ones. You know who can play Path to Exile? Esper Control. <laughs> you just you keep hoping, keep hoping, Stan. Yeah. Every time some like fringy graveyard deck takes over, I just want to play Kaya and main deck now Spell Bomb along with Path to Exile. The the week before uh, Zach Allen top forward at the open with Esper Control, I was on Versus Live and somebody just asked a question. And it was like, what needs to happen? Uh, or maybe they asked specifically, like, how many cards need to be banned for Esper Control to be good? And uh, I, I asked them how many cards are on the the, the banned list <laughs> <laughs> because I just like there is no way that deck is ever good. I had this long-winded explanation about it, and then Zaka goes and top eights the tournament, and this comes some, in second. Yeah, somebody uh, like the next week like asked a follow-up question. I didn't even remember the original question. You know, to me, it was just like a, a, a normal thing, a one-off. And I was like, oh, yeah, I did say that. Like, oops. But, you know, it's never done anything since. Zach Allen is a proven control master. So, you know, him doing well in a tournament exactly once, I don't think is a, a huge sign. So, uh, but I, I certainly looked for a minute there like I had an egg on my face. All right, we're going to take a quick break while we reminisce of that about that one time Ross was wrong. And when we come back, we got a wind down with one, maybe two, maybe more listener questions. Stay with us. 
we're back. So, Ross, since you were on the podcast the last time, we've introduced a Patreon. And we have a really killer, loyal fan base via Patreon. We love them very much. They submit awesome questions every week. And like a lot of other MTG podcasts, we like to look to our patrons for suggestions for our wind-down questions. We want to start with a question patron Starman asked, which was, what do you think about the idea of fair decks versus unfair decks in modern? And is that really even a thing that people should worry about when they're picking up a deck either for the first time, considering something from their library of decks? And is one inherently better than the other? So I just do want to say that's a paraphrase of Starman's question, which was, why do people insist on playing fair decks? We just kind of backed it up one level. Yeah, we sugarcoated it a little bit. I actually think the question as he phrased is also interesting, and I have answers for both of them. P- part of it is um, the way people learn to play Magic uh, as far as how they gravitate towards fair decks. Nobody gets taught how to play Magic while playing Dredge or Ironworks or Storm. I learned with Prosperity Bloom, I'm just saying. <laughs> I was never the same. <laughs> yeah, uh, you are a, a huge exception. Yeah, um, I, it's true. It, it is generally, you know, the most, the majority of magic that gets played gets played on that fair axis because all, that's all of, almost all of limited magic. You know, occasionally you get a weird engine deck and those are really fun when they come together. Uh, but for the most part, you know, that, that's the way limited is played. That's the way, you know, if you buy um, uh, like intro decks or uh, dual decks, you know, they're, they're all built to play somewhat fair magic. You know, there are synergies introduced, but it's not the way, uh, it's not to the point where I would describe decks uh, as unfair. You know, when I say, when I think of fair versus unfair, I think of uninteractive versus interactive. Um, and uninteractive decks tend to be proactive. Uh, and, uh, interactive decks more often are reactive, but they can be proactive as well. Just um, play Tarmogoyf. <laughs> Tarmogoyf is a, a fundamentally fair card, mm-hmm. and I think most people just learn that way, and, and you know, and they, that's the kind of magic they're accustomed to. And it, it's it's a different set of skills that goes into playing unfair decks, going playing combo decks. Uh, it is a set of skills that I think I generally have, and I think I pick up combo decks pretty uh, easily. You know that, that there's a, a sort of a puzzle-solving aspect to them that uh, I very much like. There is less interaction to them. So people that like the social aspect of Magic and interacting, you know, that there's less of that in games where you're mainly playing with yourself. Um, so uh, that aspect of it being diminished is another reason that I think a lot of people shy away from them. But it's just the fact that they don't have, like, don't put in the time with them, um, and. You know, I think it's a very useful distinction to have as long as you make it carefully. And there are some decks that can toe the line, you know, like a, a, a prison deck, like a were that's generally being uninteractive, even though you do somewhat care about the cards your opponent has. Um, but though it sort of depends on the matchup, sometimes you really care what they have because they have a lot of good stuff against you. Um, it's more like there's a slice of the metagame or slice of the available card pool of the of the available card pool that you care about. And so you just have to cross-reference that slice with the 75 cards in your opponent's deck, and then you care about the intersection. And you know your deck is good in the metagame if you often look at that intersection and see nothing uh, when it returns the null set. Um, and then you get to play an unfair game, and it gets tougher when you see a large intersection and you have to play a fair game. Um, so that's, that's another you know strike against them. 
you know, if, if you want to play interactive magic, which is, can be fun with, uh, with unfair decks, you're, you're generally doing it in a metagame that is hostile towards you. And so you probably, if you're trying to win, you probably shouldn't be playing them. Um, but generally, like, people just gravitate towards fair decks because that is generally how magic is viewed. You know, magic is creatures and card advantage and removal spells. And these are de all decks that operate on a fundamentally different axis. It's an axis that I personally find, you know, very enjoyable. But uh, I think if you polled most people, you would find that uh, they prefer to play those sorts of John style decks. Um, it also uh, comes from, this is getting really deep, but the, the other variable that is at play is a fundamental lack of understanding of the strategic level of the game versus the tactical level of the game. I've written a few articles about this over the course of my career. None of them have been very well received because I don't think I've done a great job at uh, elucidating the concept. Uh, well, let's unpack it right now. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm into I, it. It started with how I think about sideboarding. And, you know, everybody says, do you need to sideboard with a plan? But there's two different ki kinds of plans. You can adjust your tactical approach to the matchup, or you can ho make wholesale strategic adjustments to the matchup. Um, and, you know, a tactical adjustment might be adding a certain hate card or shifting which removal spells you're playing in your mid-range deck. You know, you side out your disfigures against the deck with lots of three toughness creatures mm -hmm. and bring in your cast downs when they're playing like dinosaurs, whereas you'd rather have Moment of Cravings and things against a Danto Vanguard. Heard, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Are they you're, arena you're not, exclusive? You're not, change, <laughs> you're, you're not changing what your, uh, what your strategy is. But you're you're giving yourself you're upgrading the tools available to you, and then you can make wholesale strategic shifts. We've seen this a lot in standard over the years, and it's one thing that I think uh, Brad Nelson in particular has both championed and led the way on and done a really good job of it. You know, uh, having something like Fleecemane Lion in the sideboard of the Abzan deck at Grand Prix Memphis in February of 2015, where uh, I think like six people played their their list and four that made the top eight. Uh, and it just came to the point where like getting more aggressive after sideboarding ended up being really good because everybody's bringing in, you know, people tend to bring in reactive cards when they're sideboarding because that's how they think of solving a problem. They solve the problem reactively. Uh, and that leads to, you know, making your control deck a little bit less controlling and making your aggro deck a little bit less aggressive. And so it pushes everything towards the mid range. And so, you know, people get used to playing mid-range decks because that's what they're incentivized to do because that's the way they, they think of everything on a tactical level. But if you th think of everything on a strategic level, you know, you can end up, you know, maybe making your deck even more aggressive against a control deck because they're not going to be prepared for it. Uh, and, you know, that might make, you know, be hard to do based on the composition of your deck, but it ends up being more effective because it sidesteps what your opponent is doing as opposed to, you know, trying to win through it. So it, it's sort of like the difference between using a sledgehammer and a scalpel. Most people, they use the sledgehammer. And I think if more people learn to use a scalpel, they would be, one, better magic players, and they'd be more inclined to see the value in playing uh, more linear and uninteractive decks. Ross, you touched on something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and this is a bit of a personal anecdote, but I've been playing Mono Red Phoenix the last couple of weeks because I'm planning to run it at gp indie which is a team modern tournament and uh i've been looking at my we don't want to hear about your other friends stan yeah stan <laughs> well well this might be a teachable moment for our listeners <laughs> but 
I've, I've been looking specifically at Blood Moon in the sideboard of Mono Red Phoenix and feeling increasingly underwhelmed with its position in the meta. Um, something that our other co-host Zach will periodically say is that Blood Moon is great on turn one and it's just getting weaker and weaker on turn three. And I've been thinking about Tron and kind of anticipating it getting a little bit more popular than it's been the last few months and wondering whether is it Phoenix or maybe even Burn for that matter are decks that kind of just want to go faster against Tron and not bring in Blood Moon anymore and just like count on your plan A to do the job. That is uh, something I would be very supportive of doing because I think your plan A often just kills them on turn three before they do anything of um, uh, importance. And a lot of the games that you're going to win by casting a turn three Blood Moon, you would win with a lot of other cards because you know they're games where your Blood Moon is coming down before they assemble Tron, um, and it's a three mana card. So if they don't, you know, that's either turn three on the play for you, or they didn't have turn three Tron on the play when they were on the play. Those are games that you're going to win normally. So I don't think you're gaining a whole lot by having Blood Moon in your deck unless you're a build with rituals, which most don't have anymore. Um, and the card I'm most scared of in that matchup is, especially if you don't have Arclight Phoenix in the deck, is Wormcoil Engine, which right now is a four of in the deck because it's so good against Hogak. So I would be more concerned on a tactical level with Hogak and on a strategic level with ensuring that I can just kill my opponent. And so if you wanted a card that is good against Wormcoil Engine that also contributes to just killing them, you know, the narrow answer is some sort of act of treason effect where you just take it and six them and they're probably dead uh, because they lose the blocker. The less narrow uh, answer is probably some amount of burn and maybe something along the lines of skull crack so that you're able to, you know, get an attack in and skull crack them. They don't gain the six life and they probably die on that attack. But that's also a card that's a lot more functional when they don't draw a worm coil engine. Um, so, you know, those are the kinds of things, you know, it's, it's about matching the tactics that you're using with the strategy that you're using. So you're trying to go underneath. There are certain problems you still want to f- solve, but you want to solve them with tools that fit into your uh, your aggressive, you know, non-interactive game plan. Whereas, you know, bringing in a, if like on the splash a card like Path to Exile, a reactive card, it's like you know it answers Wormcoil Engine, and there are going to be games where like it wins you the game because you know it is an efficient answer. You know, it's a cheap spell for prowess. So there's some synergy there, but it's ultimately a reactive card and a card that sits dead in your hand in games where they don't draw a Wormcoil Engine. Whereas a card like Skullcrack is a card that's going to win a good portion, probably a majority of the same games that the Path to Exile would against their turn three Wormcoil engine, but it's also going to help you win some games where you know they play a turn three Karn, maybe Uginyu, do all these other things, uh, Oblivion Stone, and then it'll deal like the last three damage as they're trying to Ulamog you or finally get a Wormcoil down later in the game. So we got time for one more. Let's see if we can do this one. This, this this is a big question, though. Should we just cut it? I just don't, I just don't know. Let's do it. No, I think I think okay. I, hold on, I like it. Hold on, I think we can't ask all of them because Jake asked like six different questions in one. But I think the, the the best nugget here is what role do you think the game has played in your life, and has the role changed, especially as you strove to, and in many ways have become a top competitor in the game. It has played a central role in my life, probably. You know, of the things that I do, it's probably the tops on the list, you know, so the uh, most central role outside of individual people that have been important in my life, magic is certainly at the top. And fundamentally, my relationship with the game shifted when I became a professional magic player and it became my job. You know, for most of my time with magic, it was a hobby and it was something that I did to get away from what I thought my main, you know, uh, 
thrust, my main job, or uh, I don't know what word to use, but the main thing I was doing at the time, you know, for most, mostly that was your vocation. Yeah. Well, for me, mostly it was school, which I guess counts as a vocation to, for the most part. So I, I picked up magic at the end of middle school, played throughout high school, a little bit less so in college. And then, you know, I became sort of a grinder, but not really a professional for several years after college. And really, I started writing in 2014. So that's when you can say I was getting starting to get paid to do magic things. But that fundamentally shifts your relationship with the game. You know, before, if I really wanted to take a weekend off, I didn't really have much like, issue doing so, at least mentally. Whereas, you know, once I became a professional, it's like, no, like I've got to strive to, you know, get as many top eights, get as many SAG points, get as many pro points, uh, all of these things, get all these achievements, especially when you're doing content, because it's become less true now. But for most of Magic's history, you legitimize your content by performing well in tournaments. Uh, so there's that added pressure. So there, there's a little bit more pressure. I've learned to deal with it more now. And that pressure goes down as your accomplishments go up. So now, like, you know, I could have a, a bad six months and, you know, people are still going to respect me, in my opinion, uh, because I have such a long history of, of results. So that diminishes the pressure to some extent. But also, there, my relationship with Magic has changed. When it's a hobby, Magic is the thing that you do to get away from whatever else you're doing. You know, for me, it was schoolwork or whatever a part of my life. Uh, magic was the, was the escape. Now magic is the thing that I need to escape from. <laughs> so, yeah, I understand so, that. Yeah, so like, a lot of people, you know, they'll ask me like what casual formats I play. And it's like, I, I don't play casual magic in my spare time. One, it's hard for me to shift my mindset to play casually. I, I can do it on occasion. I like, I like a popper cube every now and then. Um, but I, I really don't play very much casual magic, whereas like, five, ten years ago, I would play, you know, a lot of cube. Uh, I never really got into commander, but, uh, you know, you know, different cubes, different like draft formats, uh, especially, you know, maybe some type four, uh, things like that. Now, very little. I, I play some other games, but no, nothing uh, a ton. You know, I, I do very different things. And then a couple of years, for the first couple of years after I was in Roanoke, my, my life had just been sort of pure magic up until then. And with the shift, especially after Roanoke, that's when like my professional career went into overdrive that added pressure and the fact that magic was now the thing I needed to get away from, but it was also the only thing I was doing was a source of conflict. And so I had to find other things to do. And I think anybody who follows on my, me on Twitter has found some of those other things that I've gotten into. Uh, we don't really need to get into them, but I've managed to find more balance in my life. So I'm certainly happier than I was, you know, two years ago when I, when I realized that and rectified the problem. But I think a lot of the casual people, like when everybody says like, I'm living my dream, I don't, and it's not the same as I'm doing my hobby for a living. You know, turning your hobby into your job is not that this, you know, miracle panacea. Uh, you know, it, it, it actually it makes your hobby worse. Uh, it does make your job better, but it also makes your hobby worse. Um, so there, there's, it's not all good. There's a trade off there. That's a trade off that I'm willing to make because I've always been, uh, you know, more interested in the competitive side of magic and using magic as a competitive outlet than I have in any of the other aspects, whether it be collecting cards, the lore behind the game, the art, all of those things have been, you know, minor blips. Uh, and it's the strategic side and the competitive side are why I like magic and got into it. So turning magic into my job made sense for me personally. I don't think it makes sense for a lot of other people, though there are a lot more outlets for turning those other aspects of the game into something that you can make content over. You know, talking about the lore, talking about those things and more casual sides of the game, I think ha have some have an somewhat of an untapped market right now you know there are people that talk a lot about commander but and a lot about cube but are there people that really talk about the lore behind the game that talk about the art um you know uh, that there's some of the financial side too that that's 
somewhat well-developed. All these aspects of the game, I think, have some areas to be developed by people that want to do it. And so if they wanted to turn that aspect of it into their job, that would make sense. But it doesn't make sense for somebody who got into magic because they looked at a Shivan dragon and said, man, this looks really cool uh, uh, to turn their you know day job into writing about competitive magic. Because there aren't a lot of Shivan dragons around. And you know what cards you think are cute really don't play into what deck you need to play at the following tournament or how you need to sideboard. So it, it really comes down to what you're trying to get out of magic and how you can monetize that and turn that into a job. But uh, the, no matter what it is, it, there's going to be trade-offs. Wow. Yeah. Life lessons from Ross Merriam. Ross, we got to wind down. It was so great having you on again. Hopefully not the last time. Where can people find you? You mentioned Twitter. We mentioned SCG. What do you want to plug? Uh, those are the two things. You know, you can. Uh, I'm I'm off this week writing because it's such a slow week, so I won't have an article up this week. But generally, every Tuesday uh, on StarCityGames.com at 11 a.m. Eastern time, you can find that. Uh, Versus Live airs Tuesdays and Thursdays from 1 to 4 p.m. Eastern on uh, Twitch.tv/SCGTour. Those replay later that day, so if you can't catch them immediately, you can watch the VODs later that day, get it played on the same channel, and then they go up. the videos go up on YouTube and on SCG's website three days later. So the Tuesday shows go up on Friday, and the Thursday shows go up the following Monday. So you can catch those. Um, right now, it's me, Corey Baumeister, and Todd Anderson rotating. Todd will be moving out to California at the end of this week, and then it'll just be me and Corey every day. Um, end of an era. Yeah, so this is Todd's last week. I'm playing. I'm actually playing against Corey tomorrow. I guess this those will have already happened by the time this airs, so no reason to do that. Uh, so by by the time this airs, it'll just be me and Corey. So you can catch me every Tuesday and Thursday, uh, and then you can catch me on Twitter at at Ross Hunneds. That's H U N N E D S um, on Twitter. You know, that's generally where I direct people. If you ever want to ask me questions, just tweet at me, um, and, and I'll get back to you when I can. Awesome. Thank you, yeah, Ross. Me. Thanks again. Everyone else, if you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to The Dive Down so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at The Dive Down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. If you'd like to support our Patreon, joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel. We love interacting with our patrons and hearing your questions there as well. You can sign up at patreon.com slash the dive down. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and dunk on Hogak! Guys, how naive were we to think this wouldn't be a Ross interview? That this would just be Ross, one of the haha boys. <laughs> but we have this killer resource. We're gonna tap tap that resource. I also love to talk. So like <laughs> this idea that I'm I'm gonna be one of four people and I'm only gonna talk twenty five percent of the time is like that's just nonsense. <laughs> we expected thirty three percent at least. Yeah. <laughs>